32. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob saw when, I'm sorry, Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and further he is coming to meet you with four hundred men, and four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid because, and distressed, and divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds, and the camels into two companies. For he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and all of your faithfulness which you have shown to your servant, for with my staff only have I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray. From the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me and and the mothers with my children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he spent the night there. He selected from that what he had with him, a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me, and put space, a space between droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and to whom are, do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant, Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord, Esau. And behold, he is also behind us. Then he commanded also the second and third, and also the, the, those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau. When you find him, you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob is also behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the presents that go before me. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. Now as he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and eleven children and crossed the ford of Jabbok, he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. He said, he, when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. And the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God. And with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. Now the sun rose upon him as he crossed over Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of his hip. This is the the word of the Lord. Please let us uh, pray this morning. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And 
by the strength and power of your spirit. We do ask that you would give listening to our ears this morning, understanding to our minds and belief in our hearts. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to see the wonderful mercy that you have shown Jacob in revealing yourself to him and even wrestling and grappling with him all night. We pray that we would see in the same way that we also often wrestle with you. And Lord, we pray that we would be able to say without a shadow of a doubt that we also carry on ourselves the spiritual limp of meeting with God. Lord, we pray that you would be with us now for the sake of Christ, for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we come once again this morning to consider and to continue uh, our study through the book of Genesis. When I was a child, I used to love a toy. Many of you might know this toy. It was called a Viewmaster. They could be compared to today's virtual reality headsets. You have seen those. Those are the craze of the day. Viewmasters were the virtual reality headsets of my day, that is, before the computerized era. And they were these small, red, binocular-shaped items, and you would place into its top a type of circular disc, and on that disc there was a variety of pictures. And as you click the lever on the side, there was a photograph that would come one after another. Some of you are now understanding what I'm talking about. There would be one picture after another, after another. There would be a picture of an ocean. There was a picture of, of animals or mountains or sports athletes and so on. Sometimes we would click quickly through the, the pictures and pull the lever quickly. And then other times we would come across a picture that we would sometimes face toward the sun or face toward the light. And we would see that picture in a brighter and grander way in our eyes, at least mine, would linger upon that picture. Sometimes it seemed like for hours. In some ways, the Old Testament is like a viewmaster. It is full of lots of pictures that display the way in which God has been working in the lives of all of his people. And similarly, all of the pictures are connected one to another. They are one after another, showing us the redemptive plan of God in history. Some of the pictures we see give us panoramic views. We often get large chapters or a chapter that deal with whole centuries all at one time. Case in point, the life of Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, Noah is 500. In Genesis chapter 7, Noah is 600. And then there are times when we will receive a snapshot picture. One of those pictures that deal with very short periods of time. And occasionally we will get chapters that, that will deal with just a, a small percentage of, of, of someone's life. And I think that is the case here in the 32nd chapter of the book of Genesis. There appears to be this intense examination on this 24-hour period of Jacob's life that spills over into even the next chapter. But it is one of those chapters or one of those pictures, if you will, that causes us to turn it towards the sun or turn it towards the light so that we might get a more detailed understanding and view of what we are being shown here. And just like in those times of rather quickly thumbing through one picture or another, although they are all important and although they are all intricately connected, there are those times when we will come across a picture like the one that we have today that will cause us, even require us, to pause for deep reflection. That God would inspire Moses to give us such great detail about this 24-hour incident, if you will, in the day in life of Jacob, it must mean that this period, this day in Jacob's life, must be of 
enormous spiritual significance. As we continue to journey through the book of Genesis, we will see that Jacob is far from perfect from this point onward. But there is something about this meeting with God. There is something about this face-to-face encounter with God that will so radically transform Jacob's life that he will never, ever be the same again. And the Lord has determined that of all of the pictures that could be taken in Jacob's life, that this one demands our attention. So then this morning, with God's help, I would like to examine with you four different, and we're going to continue this theme, four different pictures from our view master, the Holy Scriptures, of Jacob's life in this short period of time. We will look at four different snapshots, if you will. Number one, the snapshot of Jacob's scheming once again. This is verses 1 through 7. After 20 years of Jacob being in the house of Laban, Laban the type of slave master, Jacob has been liberated from the clutches of his deceitful uncle. And now he is heading home, home to the promised land of Canaan that God had promised him 20 years prior to this day. And though Jacob may have felt a sense of relief, After being released from the hands of his deceitful uncle, the sense of relief has lasted only but a short amount of time, for he soon comes to grips with the reality that he is heading home. Well, going home for Jacob means that he will once again have to come face to face with his older brother Esau. For Jacob, it is, as they say, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Why? When we last heard of Esau, he had made a a uniquely dangerous vow. It was this. Jake or Esau said, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. This was the last that we've heard of Esau. The last that we heard of Esau, Esau is saying, as soon as dad dies, Jacob's a dead man. It was Jacob who had taken advantage of his older brother's weaknesses. It was Jacob who, along with his mother Rebekah, plotted to deceive both brother and father in order to obtain the blessing of Abraham. And in his fury... Esau makes a vow to kill Jacob once Isaac had passed and the time of mourning was over. And it was, after all, the real reason why Jacob was in the country of Haran to begin with. Rebekah urged Isaac, send Jacob away to find a wife. But it was also that his, so that his life might be spared. Rebekah had promised. Remember Rebekah's promise to Jacob? When your brother Esau calms down, I'll send a message to you and you can come back home. Did you notice that in all of the time that we've been studying through the scriptures of Genesis, that message has not come? It's been 20 years and Jacob has not heard from his mother, Rebecca. And you can imagine uh, looking, each out, looking out each day across the horizon, hoping that there was a messenger coming from his mother saying, it's safe to come back home. And yet that message has never come. And it would appear as though Rebecca has passed on. And she has passed on without ever seeing the reconciliation of her sons. As Jacob comes to this very important step in his life of going home, he knows that this confrontation, this confrontation between his hot-headed brother. Do you have a hot-headed sibling? That this confrontation cannot be avoided. And it seems as though the, the, as the distance between Jacob and Canaan becomes closer and closer or nearer and nearer, the old scheming and plotting ways of Jacob seem to emerge more and more. Almost as if, almost as if he once again 
was turning back into the man that he used to be as he gets closer to the scene of the crime. And we can see that as he prepares to meet his brother, every move that he, every move that he makes is a strategic one. He begins to send gifts ahead to his brother Esau. And those gifts are attached with a message. And did you notice the message? Every time a gift is sent to his brother Esau, he makes uh, strict instructions. You are to say this when this gift is presented to Esau. This gift is from your servant, Jacob. And it is for my Lord, Esau. Do you see what Jacob is trying to do? All of, of Jacob's life, he has been seeking to be the Lord. He has been seeking and clutching even to take hold of the birthright, to be the one who was called Lord. And yet now he is saying to his brother, no, Esau, no, Esau, you are, you are the Lord, Esau, not me. I'm, your, I'm just your servant, Esau. He is once again trying to appease his brother, hoping that all of these gifts and all of these well wishes and kind words would Put out the fire of Esau's wrath. Jacob was once again seeking to manipulate his brother Esau. He knows what kind of man Esau is. He is, as it were, making Esau another bowl of soup. Hoping that Esau will once again be distracted by what Jacob is presenting to him and not see the deceiver that Jacob actually is. This ability to scheme, this ability to plot, that there's is, there is this switch in Jacob. It's something that he's always had. It seemed to be lingering there, only needing the right circumstances to be turned and flipped back on. It was something that was a type of instinctual reaction to Jacob in Jacob, whenever he faced a, a difficult situation. And I say that because we know that switch, don't we? It's that part of our corruption that we do so well. We don't even have to think about that kind of sin that we do so well. We can sin in ways that would take other people months to figure out. And for us, it comes naturally. You know those who can so easily lie, who can so easily plot and scheme. You know those who can so easily steal, so those who can so easily deceive. They do it sometimes without even thinking, and you're amazed when you step back and say, how did you, you must have thought of this for months. Oh, it just comes naturally for some people. It only takes the right situation. Even though, uh, and what is that switch for you? What is your switch? What turns it on? Even though this switch, if you will, it was there. There was something else that was countering those sinful instincts and it was that God was at work in the life of this manipulative by nature man Jacob for God had revealed himself to Jacob at Bethuel which became the very gateway of heaven and God had promised that he would prosper Jacob that he would multiply Jacob that all nations would be blessed through him that he would take him home and that God would not leave him until all that he had promised was accomplished. And over 20 years in the house of Laban, Jacob has learned that God has been faithful. That God has, has said it and God has done it. That God would not desert him. That God would not leave him alone. And this marvelous truth was reiterated to Jacob once he entered the land of promise. For when he arrived in the land of promise, he was greeted by the glorious reality that the camp that he had been traveling with, the company that he had been traveling with, that it was not the only camp present. For when Jacob went on, 
he was given eyes to see. Much like the servant of Elijah, who when he was surrounded by the armies and camps of the world, Elijah prayed, Lord, give him eyes to see. And immediately the servant of Elijah saw that he was surrounded and encamped by the armies of the Lord, that he was not alone. And Jacob, as he enters into this promised land, he is given eyes to see the encampment of the army of the Lord around him. And he names that place Mahanaim. For he realizes that he was not the, his camp was not the only camp. He realizes that he was not alone. That the army of the Lord was with him. And I wonder dear ones if you might for a moment be able to envision in your mind's eyes hills that surround you that are filled with the army of the Lord protecting you and seeing that seeing to it that your way is clear therefore Jacob named this place Mahanaim again two camps that is the the camp of his people and the camp of the army of God and he is reminded that he is not alone and, and brothers and sisters it is true also, also when we gather when we gather for worship, we are not alone. God has promised that when the saints gather for worship, that he is with us. There is literally two camps among us this morning. There is the camp of the saints of God, and there is that camp that the Lord has encamped around us that you do not see. And it is often true that we need to be reminded that we are not alone. We know that God has promised to protect us. That God has promised to bring us home. This is why we must never forsake the assembling of the saints. Not just for the reminder, but to celebrate the wonderful truth that God is with us. And yet, in spite of the fact that God is with us, when we are faced with moments of intense pressure, when we are faced with moments of fear, when we are stressed and distressed, when we are confused, we so often resort to those natural ways of scheming, don't we? We so often resort to those natural plottings. We so often use our sinful devices that come so naturally. Because we are a twisted bunch of people. Dear ones, May I say to you, the Lord is not content simply with the fact that you have begun on the conversion road. The Lord is not content with the simple fact that you have merely given your life over to Christ and have been saved and only begun there. God has determined to untwist all of us until all of our crooked ways are made straight. And do you know that in order for that which is so drastically and dramatically twisted to be untwisted, it must be put into the fire. In order for all of our hard and twisted ways, in order for all of our crooked ways to be uncrooked, to be untwisted, you and I must be placed into the fire of God's testings. And when we are placed into the fire of God's testings, it is there and only there that we are straightened out. And Jacob is being thrown into the fire once again, as it were, so that he, in all of his crookedness, in all of his deceiving, in all of his plotting, might be straightened out once again. God is not content with you and I merely being on the road to conversion or on the conversion road. Hey, I'm saved. That's enough. No, it's not. The Lord will use all of the unpleasant, all of the sore, all of the difficult, all of the untimely, annoying, frustrating, fearful, distressing, uncomfortable, unbelievable moments in all of our twisted lives so that he might straighten us out for his glory. Amen. Amen. 
he would untwist Jacob and had been untwisting Jacob for 20 years in Laban's house. Some of you wonder, what am I doing here right now? Why this church, Lord? Why this man? Why this woman? Why that job? You are being untwisted. You are being straightened out. And we'll get to why we ask the question why in just a few moments. But Jacob is going to meet Esau. The one whom Jacob offended. Esau didn't offend Jacob per se. I'm sure at being the older, stronger because he is a man of the field brother. I'm sure he picked on Jacob enough. Jacob was a man of the tent. Jacob loved to cook with mama. I'm sure that Jacob was picked on enough by Esau, even though we must not for one second think that Jacob was weak. But the Lord was taking Jacob back to the man that he had offended. And the Lord would use this meeting to straighten out this crooked man. Not only is he taking Jacob home, but he is making Jacob reconcile with his brother. The brother that he has been at war with since the womb. Jacob, you need to go make this right. If Jacob is going to be brought back to live at the very center of obedience to God's will, there remains a broken relationship. In his life, a relationship in which he has been the deceiver that must be put back to right. Let us go to the second snapshot, if you will, of Jacob's life. And I hope that you see it. It is Jacob's fearful prayer. This is verses 6 through 13. The messengers, they've returned. Jacob sends these gifts and sends these kind words ahead. And here... Here is what returns to Jacob. No words and no gifts in response or gifts in return. The only thing that is sent back to Jacob is a picture. (laughs) It's a picture of Esau on his way with 400 men. The, The servant does not return and say, hey, Esau's on his way and he's bringing his family. That would be nice, wouldn't it be? Someone that you've offended saying, we're on our way and we're bringing our family, even if that was the only picture that was given. No, the picture that is given is Esau has arisen and he is on his way with 400 men. Anytime 400 men is used in the scriptures, it is used to denote a small militia. That is a small army. We might might imagine Esau being given all of these gifts And being told all of these appeasing words. And Esau laughing to himself and saying, he hasn't changed a bit. For those of you who were from the 90s like I am, you might have said, regulators, mount up. I hope that many of you don't know what that means whatsoever. He has not forgotten what Jacob has done to him. And to his father. He's not forgotten that Jacob has caused a division that may have pain, that may have caused pain on his mother's face that never left. Esau's been home this whole time. He's been there as Jacob's, as Esau has passed, as Isaac has passed. He's been there as Rebekah has passed. Jacob's been gone. Oh, Jacob, now you're going to get it. Dad and mom are not here to save you now. He has risen with his 400 men. And he has risen to hunt down the head of the game that he has waited 20 years to put on his wall. His brother Jacob. Jacob gets the message loud and clear. And in a panic of fear, he divides the company into two camps. 
This is also another reason why there is two camps. But initially it's because he sees the army of the Lord. He divides his camps into two camps for he believes that he's on the verge of being attacked. His, his reasoning is this, at least I will be able to save at least one camp. If one camp is attacked by Esau, at least one camp will survive. But the scriptures, they do not hide the fact that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. We might imagine Jacob running here and and running there, trying to ensure that everybody knows the game plan. When Esau comes, you go this way. And when Esau comes, you run that way, making sure that no one is left behind. And in the midst of all of this melee, He finds a place where he finally calls upon the name of God in prayer. I ask you this morning, have you known those moments in your lives? Have you known the moments when, not storms, we can handle storms for the most part. When tsunamis, absolute tidal waves, Come rushing into your lives. And you are doing all that you can to ensure that everything is not washed away. You are plugging this hole and plugging that hole and plugging this hole and trying to stick things into your home, into your lives, if you will, so that you are not altogether washed away until you finally come to the place where you simply say, I cannot plug all of these holes. And the waters come rushing into your lives. What do you do when you have done all that you can do and still what you have done is not enough? Dear ones, I believe that this was the point in life that Jacob was at. He's already been shown he's not alone. And what a glorious vision. Some of you would love to see Show me, show me an angel's feather and I'll be happy. He's seen an entire camp. They are with him. And still, rather than marching forward, trusting that the Lord and the army of hosts were with him, Jacob resorts to relying on his own wits as he's thrown into the fire. And what's the result? The result is this man is running here. He is running there. He is trying to plot. He's trying to scheme. He's distressed. He's fearful. What is that? That is the path of the man who is wise in his own eyes. They will eventually come to the place where they say, I cannot do it any longer. Well, what has happened? When you can't do it any longer, it's because you've at some point let go of the hand of God. And said, I'll do it myself. You're not working in the timely manner that I want you to work, so I'll do it myself. What's the result of doing it yourself? What's the, the, the DIY result? It is distress, it is fear, it is frustration, it is confusion. Every single time. For those who belong to the Lord. The ones who don't belong to the Lord, they will do what they always do. They'll figure it out some way. And it'll be to their glory. It'll be to their praise, not to God's. Which is why God so often places us in impossible situations again. So that at the end of the day, we would only be able to say, God has done this. This man, Jacob, always used to be able to use his natural instincts to manipulate and to maneuver his way through difficulties. And now he's being faced with the reality that he cannot manipulate his way out of this one. Not this time, Jacob. Have you been there where you've been forced into the corner? No, you can't scratch your way out of it. No, you're not a cat. You can't, you can't scratch your claw your way out of it. There's no way out. He comes to his last resort. It was surrender. 
The one who's trapped in the corner, yeah, you, you might be able to think you can fight your way out. You can't fight God. All you can do is surrender. He cast himself upon the mercy seat of God and cries out, Lord, help me. That's all you can do. I'm afraid. I'm scared right now. I don't know what to do. Can I say to you, people of God, that is exactly the place where God brings every one of his people. Which is why we all can say when we have said what we have just said, amen. (laughs) Because that is the place that we've all been in where we finally said, I give up. I surrender all, all to you, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. God will bring his people and all people to their knees. But for God's people, we will come to him in prayer, to that secret place where we say, Lord, I have done all that I can do. And it's not enough. And I'm sorry for trying to do all that I can do. Because it will never be enough. Help me. Why don't we begin there? Why do we always end there? It's always the place where we are, when we are at the end of ourselves, where we finally say, okay, God, you you got me. It's amazing sometimes when you see those people. (laughs) I don't mean to use a vulgar example, but my wife and I, for, for whatever reason, we like to watch live PD. Those examples of the cops who are, and it's, it's amazing to me. There was an example of a man who was walking with a cop and a cop said, let's, let's walk outside. And the man said, okay, we walked outside. As soon as he walked outside, he took off running. You're not going to, you're not going to get away. It's a one in a million chance that you're going to, why wouldn't you just say, you, you, you got me. We have to come to the end of ourselves, don't we? We need to explore all and exhaust all of the dumb avenues of maybe I might be able to, if I could just jump that fence and slide under that hole and then come over that barb, you're not going to make it. But we sure do try, don't we? After we are bloody and, and tired and dirty and okay, okay, you got me. And you know, it's amazing when they're on the floor. Okay, officer, I'm not fighting you anymore. You better not. It was Augustine who said, when we are emptied of ourselves and all of our resources are finished, then the battle is won and the Lord has gained victory in our lives. But we need to be emptied, don't we? And I think our problem is that we, we often, too often, hold on to too much of ourselves. Which is why we so, we so rarely see so much fruit coming out of our lives. This was the position that Jacob was in as he comes to meet his brother. This moment that God was going to remove yet another scale. From Jacob's sinful life. And where God would replace that scale with a brush stroke of his holiness. And what was that scale? What was that thing that Jacob pleaded to the Lord for help? Again, it was a broken relationship. That is the most costly thing right now in Jacob's life that he could put right or that could be put right. It was that relationship between his brother that Jacob would confess that he shattered in so many ways because of his sinful actions, his sinful actions. It was the most costly repair that he could not scheme his way out of. He could only ask for the grace of God and for the pardon of his brother. And in this fear, he turns to God in prayer. Oh, God of my father, Abraham, my my father, Isaac, I am unworthy of all of the kindnesses that you've shown me. Help me in this broken relationship. Help me in restoring this thing that I have done by my sin. 
And we see as the story unfolds that it is truly amazing grace that works in his life. Because it will eventually bring this converted man to a place of reconciliation with his brothers, with his brother. Dear ones, have you come to the end of yourselves? Have you ever been asked that? How do you know that you've come to the end of yourself? Very simply, and this is not profound. You will know that you have come to the end of yourself by the amount of time that you spend in prayer. What is prayer? It's an over and over again confession to God that I can't do this. That only you can. And the content of those prayers can be summed up often as this. I don't know what to do. Help me. Simple, isn't it? And then tell him all of the ways. Lord, I, I cannot be everything I know I should be. But I know that you can help me. I cannot love in the way that I know that I should. But I know that you can help me. And I know that with your help, I can. Lord, I am fearful in these areas, but I know that you can help me. I am anxious in these areas, but I know that you will give me peace. I am uncomfortable here, but I know that you, Lord, will see me through. Lord, sometimes I feel like I'm alone. Show me that you are there. That's the coming to the end of yourself. But we so often, every single day, just go about our way. And, and what we are actually doing is... We are trying to jump fences and get over barbed wire and break out of handcuffs until finally we say, okay, you got me. Would you help me through it now? Some of you might say, I don't know what to say when I pray. Well, then you are saying exactly what the scriptures say about you. That you don't know what to say. As a matter of fact, that when you do pray, it's the spirit of God who is helping you to pray. We don't know what to ask for ourselves. The Spirit helps us and sometimes just with an, Oh, Lord. Oh, my God. With groanings that cannot be comprehended by any. Someone would hear your prayer. What are you praying? Oh, God knows. God knows. Jacob spent all of those years in Haran being untwisted by God. Why? So that he might be prepared for what would come next in his life. Number three, the third snapshot is Jacob, the man who grappled with God. He's in distress. He's in fear. He prays to the Lord. But did you notice that the Lord does not answer him? Instead, Jacob starts to do what he was already doing. But he makes it more elaborate. He believes that what he's doing is a wise choice. He begins to send gifts ahead of his brother Esau, to his brother Esau. So he sends them in droves. First, send the goats. And here's the message. This is from your servant to my Lord. Then he sends the lambs. This is from your servant to Two miles. Then he sends the donkeys, and then he sends the cow, so on and so forth. Esau would literally be overwhelmed. It would be like Christmas, and all the presents are for you. Imagine that, going to the tree. We're not too far removed from Christmas, and you see all of those presents, and every single one of them, I think little ones would love this, every single one of them has your name on it. The Lord would use those gifts as we will see next week, to soften Esau's heart. But later, as the gifts are gone, as all of his possessions are gone, Jacob is only there with his wives and his children. He has been stripped of 
of all of his possessions. And then he does one last thing. He sends his children and his wives also ahead of him. And now he's alone. Absolutely alone. It may have been years since Jacob has been absolutely alone. There is not a thing in his hand except a staff that he will cross the river with. There is not a camel to his name, if you will, nor a child or wife to call upon him or distract him. He is alone. Some of you know that feeling when you're home at times or when you're driving sometimes and you're thinking to yourself, it's just me. And sometimes we fear those moments, don't we? Are you one of those ones who needs to always be listening to something? You've always got a, a headphone in your ear or something playing. Try to listen to nothing when you drive. And spend that time doing what happened next with Jacob. Suddenly a man attacks him. Listen to me, or listen to the scriptures. A man attacks him. The two of them begin to wrestle and grapple. And it is a, a match that goes on and on. And as the night goes on, it is obvious that, that this stranger is stronger than Jacob because Jacob, he is a strong man. He has moved this big stone of the well all by himself, a, a stone that would take many men to move. He's done it all by himself. He's not a weak man. And yet he is not able to overcome this man who has attacked him. He, he is holding him there and they are wrestling and grappling with one another and energy is being expended against this man who is this man i wonder if if jacob was thinking this as he who in the world is this what are you doing why why are you doing this and we learn that as the story progresses it is the lord it is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord God. And he has appeared in the form of a man. You may say to us, to yourself, how is it that God appeared and wrestled with Jacob? Well, did not God walk with Adam in the garden? Did not God appear to Abraham at his tent and, and even feast with him there? And so it is that God also appears to Jacob and wrestles, grapples with him. And it's a, it's a match for the ages. It literally lasts until daybreak. But really, it's like a father. A father who is wrestling with his little boy. And the father knows just how much energy to ex exert and to expend until uh, he finally does not crush his son, but will allow his son to tussle with him. And good fathers often let their, their sons win in those wrestling matches. Okay, you got me. I don't think my dad ever did that, but my dad was still a good dad. God condescends to Jacob. He gives Jacob the opportunity to exhaust himself against God in this grappling match. And it is an interesting point that those hands of Jacob that first grabbed on to his older brother's ankle those hands of Jacob that would seek to snatch away the birthright, those hands of Jacob that snatched away a good relationship with his brother and his father, those hands that were known for being comfortable with scheming and plotting his way in and out of trouble, those hands are now emptied of everything. And the only thing in the hands of Jacob is God. As he holds him, and as he grapples with him, and as he wrestles with him. The only thing in his hands, after being stripped of all that he has, all that he now has is the Lord. And it is this amazing picture of that great hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring, but only to the cross I cling. This is how God works.
So long as you and I have something else in our hands other than Him, at His time, in His way, in His purposes, then we've got too much in our hands. If you've got something in your hands other than God, and if at the end of the day you cannot say, this is for God's glory, not my own, and this is so that I might be a better witness in this world, not so that I might make much of myself, it's for God, then you've got too much in your hands. Oh, and that we would be so bold as to ask God, is this something that should be in my hands? Or do I have too much? Too much of me and not enough of you. It's so touching because he recognizes that this is the time that he has been brought to have nothing. He sent away all of his possessions, his cattle, his, his family. He's utterly alone. And yet, Jacob has never had so much in his hands. In the hour when he has had nothing but only what God has put there. Oh, that we would live our lives that way. As we plot and plan about how we will do things in the future. How we will do this and how we will do, how we will do that. How we will go here and how we will go there. And God is saying to Jacob, if you're ever going to be anything in my kingdom, there must be nothing in your hands except my hands. If you're ever going to go to the land of promise, you must enter with your hands emptied of all of your purposes and only filled with all of his purposes. Jacob had emptied his life, had been emptied of his life and all of his accessories. And now he's being made over by God. And at this point it becomes clear to Jacob who this man is. It is the Lord. Night begins to turn to day, and God says to him, let me go. Day is breaking, you need to let me go. And as the story unfolds, it is clear that, that, that Jacob is wrestling with God, but the scriptures say that he sees God face to face. Now, you all know that the scriptures say that no one can see the face of God and live. So how is it that Jacob sees this, the face of God? Is this a contradiction? Oh, no. There are no contradictions in the scriptures, and this one not in the least. So how then are we to understand Jacob seeing the face of God? We are to understand it in the same way that Adam saw God. In the same way that Abraham saw God. In the same way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saw the Son of God. And so did Nebuchadnezzar see the sons of God, or the Son of God, who looks like the Son of the gods, he says. And he lived and also, how all those who lived during the days of the Lord Jesus Christ saw God and lived. What do we mean? It was God veiled in human flesh that Jacob saw. It was not the unveiled glory of the face of God that Jacob saw. For if he had seen the unveiled glory of God, the face of God, he would have not lived. And we also must understand that God is a spirit. He does not have a face like you and I. God condescends to man and gives man a face to see, but it is not his face. He saw the face of the man that God took the form of that day. And that is how we are to understand the passage. Therefore, God or Jacob saw God, the face of God in a veiled form. And God is saying to Jacob, let me go. And there is this awesome moment where Jacob says, I won't let you go. Not until you bless me. Jacob knows that he is not dealing with an inferior, but he is grappling with the superior because only the superior has any authority or power to bless the one who is inferior. Bless me, please. You are greater than I. Bless me. 
And the Lord asked Jacob this. What is your name? Did the Lord know Jacob's name? He knew Jacob's name before Jacob ever knew his name. He knows that Jacob is a twisted man. He knows that Jacob was a deceiver and a swindler. He knows Jacob well. But Jacob, do you know yourself? It is this wonderful moment where Jacob needs to confess, I am Jacob. And Jacob knows all of the connotations and definitions that are attached to that name. I am everything that my name says I am. (laughs) Do you know people who ridicule you for who you used to be? And who will not let you live down who you were or what you have done. Almost as if your name means all of those things that you have done. Say to them, you don't know the half of it. If you knew all of the things that I have done, you only know the things you know. I know all the things and more. And if you knew what was in here that I want to do and that I wanted to do, oh, you would run for the hills. There's that sonic commercial that's been going on lately where this one of the two guys is uh, speaking to one another about food and it's set in a boxing kind of theme and the one individual tries to get into his head and the other one says, hey man, don't mess with me. I only got enough room for, I barely got enough room for me in there. Oh, if we were, if people were to see all of the things that were inside there. Jacob says, yes, I'm that and so much more. But do you know what the Lord says to all of his saints? Do you notice that I just called you what the Bible calls you? He says to his saints, not to his sinners. Stop saying I'm just a sinner. No, that's not what the Bible calls you anymore. You are a saint who sins. But you are still nevertheless a saint. No matter what anyone says about you, no matter what what kind of past you have done or things you have said or even thoughts that you have had, you are a saint in the eyes of God. And it is what God gets Jacob to realize for the very first time in 20 years. Jacob, no, when I revealed myself to you 20 years ago, you have been from that very time Israel. And now you know it. Your name will no longer be Jacob. You are Israel. What does Israel mean? It means one who contends or grapples with God. It's taken 20 years for Jacob to realize that all of this time he's been grappling with God. And there's something very interesting in all of of Jacob's life, isn't there? All of Jacob's life, his fight was not with Esau. He was not grappling with his father Isaac, and he was not grappling with Laban. He was not wrestling with Leah. All of this time, he's been grappling with God. All of his life, he's been contending against God. And and this reality becomes more and more clear. As night turns to day. Or spiritually speaking, as he goes from darkness to light. And it is the same for you. Your fight is not against your brothers or your sisters or your husbands and wives, your boss per se. Your and my fight prior to coming to Christ has been with Christ. It's been with God. We've been grappling against God. We've been, we were grappling against what God had commanded Grappling against his righteous standard, grappling against how we are to love our spouses and our children, grappling over what God commands for our time and for our finances. And when we were called out of darkness, we have been going through this process of being untwisted. And it is God who has been untwisting us all of this time. 
And yes, he's used the Labans, he's used the Leahs, he's used the Esau's, but our fight is not with them. God is doing this. How often do you and I love or hate different things that are difficult in our lives? They are for the purpose of us realizing that we are grappling with what God has commanded. And it is hard, isn't it? It's hard when we know that there is something that we must do, but we don't really want to do. Can I say to you, you're not fighting against the church. You're not fighting against the husband or the... You're fighting against God. And it's always a losing battle if you belong to him. You cannot overcome God. But the Bible says that Jacob overcomes him. Brothers and sisters, he overcomes God because he has been overcome by God. He is therefore in God and no longer against God. And when you are in God, you are a victor in him. That's how he has overcome. Jacob is no longer fighting against God. God is now for him. He's been made an overcomer. There's still more unraveling to do. At the end of the day, Jacob has not been fully untwisted, if you will. We'll see more in the story of Joseph. But he's never going to be the same. I won't let you go unless you bless me. What a joy it is to be wiped clean. It is God's way of peeling away the scales of sin and making us whole again. You know, encounters with God, they are always transformational. They are always instantaneous transformations. They're always irresistible transformations. Always complete. There's nothing else you need to do to be saved, right? But they're never casual. They're never painless. They always will leave a mark on you. And you will never be the same after those encounters with God. Because a death is taking place. The birth of the new man involves death. Oh, and that we would still ask God to help us put sin to death in our lives. Give me your blessing. Make me your own. Take me to the end of my plans and my schemings until all I can say is all that I am is yours. And briefly in closing, the snapshot of Jacob's limp. (laughs) This is the best of all pictures, I think. If I could have one picture on my wall, I think, if I ever get uh, my own office at my home or something, I would love a picture of a man limping, of Jacob specifically limping. And it's a marvelous transformation. Jacob had been sending everyone in front of him, and now he is going to meet his brother. And we'll see in the next chapter when he does, when he sees his brother in the distance, he is... He's, as it were, that prodigal son or prodigal brother who is returning home. And when he sees his brother in the distance, he bows down to the ground seven times to his brother. And as he stands and his brother Esau sees him coming in the distance, he notices something different about Jacob. Jacob is no longer walking with the strength that he once had. Jacob is limping. Something has happened to Jacob. Jacob has been changed externally and internally. And it's a limp that would never leave him. God, and if you want to say, well, it says that he prevailed, God knocked simply by touching his hip out of his socket. I think uh, of one of my favorite athletes of all time, Bo Jackson. Superhero to me growing up. Every time Bo played, I watched. And one day, Bo was running down the sideline against, uh, oh, I forget who it was now, the Chiefs. And I thought, oh, he's gone. No one's going to catch Bo. And one of those 
godforsaken football players. <laughs> Grabbed Bo by his left leg and yanked on his foot, pulled it, and Bo kept going. And I saw Bo go to the ground. I thought, well, he's Superman. He'll get back up. But he laid there for a moment. He turned over onto his back, and I thought, couldn't have hurt you that bad. Get up, Bo. Get up, Bo. Come on. And then the doctors came to Bo and checked on him, and Bo stood up, and Bo had a limp. Bo's hip had been pulled out of its socket, and he was never the same athlete ever again. We always, those of us who are big fans of Bo, always wonder what would have happened if he would have been in the Hall of Fame. Sure, sure by now. But he was never the same after that moment. We must thank God that he tackled us and pulled our spiritual hip, as it were, out of its socket. And now you and I walk with a perpetual spiritual limp of being overcome by God. And you and I are never the same. The sun was rising and Jacob went away limping and with the blessing of God on his heart. He's a new creation. Do you know about that limp? Do you have that limp? It is simply this. It is knowing someone or knowing that you that you have been with God. That you have been changed by God. And all those who belong to God walk about with that, that crutch, as it were. They are marked as those who have been with God, as those who belong to God. They, they don't just speak the pretentious Christian words. They don't just say the cliche words of, oh, God bless you. They are true blue Christians. They have altogether been changed. You know by spending moments with them, this person has been with God. And brothers and sisters, I pray that that is true for all of you. That you have met with God. God has met with you. That you have been changed. That you are no longer the same. That you walk in your lives in such a way that people can tell that you have been with God. And that even those who've seen you or known you from the past can say to you, there's something different about you. What is it you can say to them? I've, I've, I've grappled with God. And he has overcome me. Jacob will never be the same. And we will see the reconciliation in this next chapter. But there are a few encouragements that I would like to leave you with. And that is this. Don't wait to pray. Let it be the first thing you do, not the last. If there are relationships in your lives and you are the culprit. You are the one who has sinned. You are the one who has deceived. Make it right. Make it right. I'm not talking about those who have sinned against you. Forgive them. I'm talking about those whom you have sinned against. Go and make it right. And finally, let your life be a perpetual example to all those that you meet that you have met with God and that you are no longer the same. Let's pray.